This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we do thank you for this opportunity to worship you through the study of your word. We recognize that there is no other, no higher form of worship than to study your word, to learn what you have revealed to us, to learn your instructions to us, to come to understand how you think and how we are to think in relationship to the world around us. Father, we pray that as we study this morning that we are challenged by a world vision that you have for reaching those who are lost throughout this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, there are many hundreds, thousands of missionaries sent out from churches in this country who are faithfully teaching the word of God, who are faithfully explaining the gospel and witnessing to those who have never heard. There are those who are in very difficult uh, situations, those who are in uh, areas in Central Asia, those who are in areas uh, behind the bamboo curtain in China. There are those who are serving in extremely uh, difficult cir- circumstances uh, of tremendous poverty and uh, an absence of all creature comforts that they've grown up with in the, in the United States. And, Father, we pray for them. We pray that you would protect them, watch over them, that uh, you would uh, enable them to be very effective in the translation works that they're engaged in and in other works uh, where they are teaching, training, and challenging people with the truth of your word. Father, one of the functions of a client nation is to enable the churches to send out missionaries. And, Father, we pray that you would continue to protect this nation, that we may continue to send missionaries throughout the world. Father, we just pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in 3 John. 3 John 5 through 7, 5 through 8. John is praising Gaius, the one to whom he is writing this short epistle. He is praising Gaius because of his hospitality to those who have traveled through his area and those he has, he has taken care of, he classifies them as the brethren and strangers in verse 5. 
where he writes, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. Uh, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers with the truth. The point that John is praising in these verses is that Gaius has opened up his home to the traveling evangelists and teachers and what we would call today missionaries, and he is supporting them financially. He is making sure that when they leave his home, he has done whatever he personally can to meet their physical and financial needs and to send them on his way, as John says, in a manner worthy of God. And this tells us how we are to treat and honor missionaries and those who serve the Lord in full-time professional uh, Christian work, that we should honor these people because they have, in many ways, sacrificed many creature comforts and many other um, things that we are all used to, in order to serve the Lord in a full-time professional capacity. So I have taken this opportunity to develop for us an emphasis and an understanding on the role of missions and the importance of missions to a local church in supporting missionaries. Uh, A church should have a strong missions emphasis. Now, of course, a small church as we are, finds a certain limitation. But we may be limited in some ways financially, but there are many other ways, in some ways more, some ways these are more important than financial support to a missionary. We can pray for them. We can be uh, communicating with them to find out uh, more about what it is that they are doing. We can, in some ways, go on short-term missions trips, depending on who the who the uh, person is and what they're doing to help in, in other areas. But we need to have a vision for missions and the importance of missions. We began a few, few weeks ago. We began a few weeks ago with uh, a study of the definition of missions. Excuse me just a minute while I fix the problem with the computer. We started up a few weeks ago with a definition of missions. And in that definition, I defined it this way. Sending forth authorized persons beyond the border of the New Testament church and her immediate gospel influence to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in gospel destitute areas and to win converts from other faiths or non-faiths to Jesus Christ, and to establishing local indigenous congregations who will, uh, in turn, be self-supporting, training their own leadership. We focused on that. We focused on the fact that this, the idea of missions, goes back to the Old Testament, that there is an Old Testament foundation to uh, missions and missionary work. It starts in the Garden of Eden when God first announced what was called the uh, Proto-Evangelium, or the first indication of the gospel, which is mentioned in Genesis 3:15, and then we traced it through the Abrahamic covenant. 
And we saw that the foundation in the Abrahamic covenant is... It's a foundation for all of God's outreach to the nations in the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Well, here's our definition of missions now that I've got the computer going and everything functioning up on the screen. Missions technically refers to a form of cross-cultural evangelism where designated individuals are set apart by a local church to carry out the work of communicating the gospel teaching the Word of God and the whole realm of Bible doctrine, with the end result of creating a self-supporting indigenous ministry. And then part of any such endeavor involves the training and preparation of those involved to accurately handle and teach the Word of God. Thus, the support of such training institutions is also a part of missions. It's not only important to send people, but it's important to send trained people. It's important to have people who know, uh, who are skilled in communication, who know the Bible. You have all kinds of different people involved. You have uh, linguists involved, such as those who work with uh, Wycliffe Bible translators, and they are often on the forefront of all kinds of missions activity because it is important to have a Bible in the language of the people you're communicating to, and if they don't have a Bible in their own language, it is extremely difficult. I remember uh, four years ago when uh, we went over to Kazakhstan and we were teaching, and some of the uh, pastors that were there were Kazakhs, and they did not understand Russian. They just knew their own language, and they had a Kazakh Bible that was uh, that had no Old Testament. Uh, nothing in the Old Testament had been translated into Kazakh, and about only about two-thirds of the New Testament had been translated into the Kazakh language, and what had been translated into the Kazakh language was a pathetic translation. The uh, Baptist missionary who did the translation translated not from the Greek, but from the New International Version English translation. So it was a bad translation of a in my opinion, a bad English translation. And so it was quite a distortion. And uh, my teaching was constantly slowed down by having the, the translator back translate the Kazakh Bible from Kazakh into English so I could get some idea of what they were reading. And in many cases, what they had in their Bible was nothing like the original, so you had to stop and sometimes spend 15 or 20 minutes just straightening out the Bible translation before you could even even move on and, and uh, teach anybody. So it's crucial to pray for these kinds of people and to get uh, have a Bible translated into the uh, native language. And as we'll see as we go through a study of missions and missionary expansion throughout the centuries, that this was always the first thing that happened was that the missionaries would, in many cases, they would have to learn the language, create an alphabet and a writing system for the people and before they could ever even translate the Bible into the language so they could begin to teach the Bible. So in many cases, being a missionary involves a lifetime commitment to a specific people and location. So the amount of work that can be done uh, may seem very, very small by comparison, but yet it lays the foundation for all kinds of, of, uh, of future work.
In the Abrahamic covenant, which was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we've seen that there were three provisions, the land promise, the seed promise, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and then the third category of the Abrahamic covenant had to do with a worldwide blessing, that God would bless all nations through Abraham. And that is the foundation for all missions, that through Israel, through the seed, which is Jesus Christ, all nations would be blessed. In the Old Testament, Israel was a missionary nation, not that they were sent out to all the nations, but it was just the reverse. All nations were to come to Israel. And as uh, people traveled to Israel, as caravanners went through the land, they saw they were to see that there was something different, something unique about Israel. They would learn the gospel there and take it back to their uh, native people. And it's always interesting for me when I read in classics, and recently I was given a book called Carnage and Culture, which is an interesting uh, analysis of of, uh, I think, eight or nine different battles in history that have pitted the West against the East, and the West has always won. And it's a fascinating outworking of the uh, blessing and curse uh, that Noah gave on his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And when we get to that area in our study of, of uh, Genesis, then I'll refer to it in a lot of ways. But the first article had to do with the, uh, or the first chapter had to do with the naval battle of Salamis in, uh, in Greece that occurred between the Greeks and the Persians. And the author is a, is a classicist. He teaches classics at uh, Cal State in Fresno out in California. And it always amazes me as he's talking about the whole concept of freedom and how important freedom was to, to the Greeks. And he just ignores the fact, he says, the Greeks were the first people to have freedom or to understand the concept of freedom. And it just completely ignores the freedom that existed in Israel. And you'll see the same thing happen. They'll say that history started with the Greeks, but that just completely ignores the history of the Old Testament and, and Moses and Joshua because that's, quote, religious. But there was a real freedom in Israel under the Mosaic Law and there were institutions, and we studied that in our study of the book of Judges, and we saw the breakdown and collapse of that freedom because of moral relativism and how moral relativism destroys freedom. And Israel never fulfilled that role as being a light to the nations in the Old Testament. So when they reject Jesus as Messiah, they are temporarily replaced by the church during the church age, and the mission given the church is to take the gospel to the nations. And last time we studied the passages in the gospels where Jesus instructs the disciples to go and take the gospel to all the nations and to make disciples or learners or students of all nations. And we stopped there last time before we got into the outworking of that mandate, which is covered in the book of Acts. So this morning what I want you to do is to turn to Acts chapter 1. Turn to Acts chapter 1, and what we're going to do this morning is to trace the outworking of the Great Commission in the book of Acts. Now the Great Commission, uh, the most a concise statement of Jesus' 
mission statement to the uh, disciples was given in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there is a promise there that as we go forth in carrying the gospel to all the nations and fulfilling that mandate, that Jesus Christ is always with us. And not only that, we have the promise of a special empowerment through God the Holy Spirit. So we're going to begin our study of missions in the Bible with Acts chapter 1. Look with me at Acts 1 verse 4. This is the time of the ascension. These are Jesus' parting words to the disciples just before he ascends to heaven. And they are assembled with him, verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Now, the promise of the Father is that he would send another comforter, another of a uh, of the same kind. We studied the difference between alas and heteros in the first hour, and this is alas, another of the same kind referred to in John 14, John 15, John 16, that the other comforter is God the Holy Spirit. So they were to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. Now, there are those who have taken this out of context and said, well, what you have to do in the Christian life is is to wait, or the old King James translated it, tarry, and they emphasize this doctrine of tarrying. If you haven't been around religious circles long, and probably never heard that terminology. But the idea was that after you're saved, you need to wait for the second blessing, and that's not the concept. The concept is that Jesus is getting ready to go to heaven. John 16:7, Jesus said that I have to ascend to heaven before the Holy Spirit can be sent, before I can send the Holy Spirit. And so he was telling them to wait in Jerusalem until he got to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. And he refers to this again in verse 8. So skip down to verse 8. But you shall receive, future tense, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So in verse 4 he says, stay here until the promise of the Father comes. Verse 8 he says, when that happens you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. See, there's a cause and effect relationship between the coming of the Holy Spirit, the reception of power from the Holy Spirit, and then being witnesses. And then when we look at verse 8, we're to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, this is a verse that has particular resonance with any student who went through Dallas Seminary under the teaching of a man there named Howard Hendricks. Because the first semester when you hit Dallas Seminary as a student, you had to take a course in Bible study methods. And this was a completely different approach to studying the Bible than I'd ever been been exposed to, but it's foundational to understanding the Scripture. And the first part of any Bible study method is to just simply observe the text. What does the text say? And this is just just foundational, and we would cover, in the first semester of Bible study methods, we had to cover the three stages of Bible study methods, which is observation, the second stage is interpretation, 
which is uh, what does it mean? Observation is what does it say? Interpretation is what does it mean? And then the third stage is application. And application is what does it mean to me? And see, what happens with most people is they do very little observation. They leap over interpretation, and they focus on what does it mean to me, and it's pure subjectivity. And uh, Prof. Hendricks would give us about three weeks of instruction on observation. And it was always a fascinating time, and, and he had lots of different things that he did, little practical exercises and drills. One time he had a film from the... Uh, FBI that he showed about a three minute film and you were to write down all the things that you observed and then answer a series of questions. It's amazing how blind most of us are. But he would start off and after the first lecture on observation, he would say, now what I want you to do tonight for your assignment is to go home and read Acts 1-8 and write down a list of 25 uh, observations. And so everybody would go, oh, well, that's pretty simple. And people would go home and write down our list of 25 observations. Then you would come back two days later for your second class, have another lecture on observation. He would say, go home tonight and write down 25 more observations on Acts 1-8. Oh, now this is going to get a little difficult. So you go home, you write down 25 more observations on Acts 1-8. And then you would come back, and he would start a third lecture. And by this time, he's starting to talk about context, that a, that a verse isn't in isolation. It's in a context. And if you notice, Acts 1-8 starts off with but. And actually, in the original language, uh, in the original Greek, verse 8 is the second half of the sentence. Uh, verse 7 doesn't end with a period. It does if you've got a King James Version, because... Uh, the King James translators tried to make every verse a, a, a complete sentence that they could. And so it's, uh, verse 8 is part of verse 7. So you'd have to start expanding your observations to show how the verse relates to context. And you'd have to go home and write 25 more observations on Acts 1-8. Then you'd come back to about your fourth or fifth class. And this just went on and on for three weeks. And every time you'd come to class, you'd have another lecture on observation and various exercises, and then go home and write down 25 more observations on Acts 1-8. Till after about four weeks of this, you were told, after you've written down 250 observations of Acts 1-8, then now you go home and write as many as you can. And by the way, you probably won't break the record, but the record is something like 800 observations, uh, 800 and change observations on Acts 1-8. So go home and do what you can. And the point is that you have a lot of uh, emphasis on certain passages. Now, you can't do that with every verse, but you can with Acts 1-8, because Acts 1-8 really outlines the whole book of Acts. So once you start extrapolating from uh, the context, you can do a tremendous amount in terms of observation because what Jesus is telling the disciples is you're going to start off in Jerusalem, where you are. You're going to wait there for the Holy Spirit, and when he comes, you're going to have power to be witnesses. Now, remember the Great Commission, you're to go into all the world and and make learners or students throughout the world. And the process is going to be that you start here where you are in Jerusalem. Then you're going to go to the surrounding province, which is Judea. Then the province to the north, which is Samaria. And then to the outermost part of the world. And so there's a progression here from Jerusalem to the province Judea, to the area just north to Samaria, and moving out. 
And so they're given their mission statement. But see, the disciples did not follow the Great Commission willingly. They're just like most of us. They don't want to be uh, put upon. They don't want to have to sacrifice. They don't want to be put in difficult situations. They don't want to move outside their comfort zone. And so it was necessary for God to step in and interfere with the situation and to put pressure on them to take the gospel out. And this, by the way, is the basic outline and structure of the book of Acts. They start off in Jerusalem, and then by the time we get down to chapter 8, we see them uh, the persecution arise in Jerusalem. See, they didn't willingly leave Jerusalem. God had to allow persecution to develop to kick them out of Jerusalem. And so they were forced out of Jerusalem, but they didn't go far. They just went to the surrounding area in Judea and Samaria, and there had to be a little more persecution. Eventually, they began to scatter throughout the the uh, world and began to carry out the Great Commission, but they didn't do it uh, willingly. So this is always a problem, is, is that we'd rather just stay home where we're comfortable than get involved in taking the gospel to those who have never heard. Well, in Acts 1.8, we see the foundation in terms of the power and the ability, and it's not natural. It comes from the Holy Spirit, and under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, the church expands. And the first place that we see this witness taking place is when the Holy Spirit came on the early church in Acts 2. Now, what I'm doing this morning is we're not doing an in-depth study of anything. We're just going to hit the high points and give you that bird's-eye view of the expansion of Christianity in the early church. So in Acts chapters 2, we see the beginning when the Holy Spirit comes on the 11 disciples and they speak in languages. I don't like using the word speak in tongues because that word isn't understood very well today. They were speaking in the languages of the Jews that had come to Jerusalem for the feast day of the day of Pentecost. It was one of three feast days when all the Jewish males were supposed to come to the temple in Jerusalem. And they came from all over the empire and from outside the empire. And there's a list in verses um, 9 through 11 of this chapter of all the different geographical areas where people came uh, came from. And they heard Peter proclaim the gospel in chapter 2. And the result is that 5,000 were saved. So the church begins to grow and begins to expand phenomenally. And then the next expansion occurs in, in Acts chapter 8. So turn over to Acts 8. In between, in Acts 1 through 7, we see different problems and conflicts that occurred in Jerusalem. And as a result of the ministry of Stephen and others, they engendered a tremendous hostility from the religious elite, from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the consequence was that a persecution arose. So when we come to chapter 8, verse 1, we're, first, we're introduced to, to Saul for the first time. Now Saul was consenting to his death, that is, the death of Stephen, and at that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So this is stage two in growth. They, they didn't leave Jerusalem and take the gospel outside the city and it, willingly. God had to allow this persecution to come along to force them 
out into Judea and Samaria. And so chapters 8, 8 through 11 are going to describe this expansion into Jerusalem, or actually 8 through 10, this expansion of the gospel into Judea and Samaria. So let's skip down and pick up a couple of verses. In 8.4, we see the uh, first incident of this expansion under the ministry of Philip. Verse 4, we read, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So they were scattered, and they went out teaching and proclaiming the gospel to the Jews in Judea and Samaria. So at this point, the the ministry and the church is still primarily Jewish in character. And we're told in verse 5, Then Philip went down, and you always say going down when you're referencing uh, when Ju- Jerusalem is your reference point, because Jerusalem has a high elevation, and whenever you go to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem, and whenever you are leaving Jerusalem, you go down from Jerusalem. It's a it's an elevation factor. It's not a uh, in in English we talk about if you go up, you're going north; if you go down, you're going south. But that's you have to understand the Hebrew idiom. So Philip went down from Jerusalem to the city of Samaria. So he is the first example of a cross-cultural ministry. He is going to the Samaritans who were half Jews and half Gentile. They were the objects of tremendous prejudice, racial prejudice from the Jews because they weren't uh, fully Jewish. In fact, any Jew who was going from the south in Judea to the north in Galilee would cross over the Jordan to the uh, east side of the Jordan, and then they would go all the way around so they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. They hated the Samaritans so much. So Philip is the first one to get engaged in this kind of cross-cultural ministry and go to a people who were uh, hated and despised by the Jews, and he uh, preached the gospel to them. Then... They respond, and many of them are saved, and Peter and John go to them, and we hear about this in verse um, uh, verse 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, and then skip down to verse 16, we read, for as yet... Uh, they had not received the Holy Spirit. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So when Peter and John get there, they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but there's no speaking in tongues at that point, speaking in languages at the Samaritan, uh, what uh, beginning of the Samaritan uh, church. So we see this first cross-cultural communication take place. Then Philip is again used in a second cross-cultural, cultural communication when he gives the gospel to the Ethiopian beginning in verse 26. And there we see that that once again, uh, Philip is moved by special revelation. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying in verse 26, Acts 8, 26, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all of her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. So here is a Jewish proselyte. This is a, an Ethiopian who has converted to, to Judaism as it was practiced in the first century. He has come to Jerusalem for uh, the day of Pentecost, and he is positive to the gospel, but he hasn't heard it yet. And he's reading in Isaiah in his chariot as he's riding home, and Philip catches up with him. And as he is reading in Isaiah, he doesn't understand it. And so Philip says, uh, once he, uh, Philip asks him if he understands it. In verse 34 we read, So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? And so Philip then explains the scripture, explains the gospel, to the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian responds positively and trusts Christ as his Savior. The result of this is he is uh, baptized by uh, by immersion. And in verse 39, Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. So the eunuch then becomes a missionary to Ethiopia. He's going to go back to his home in Ethiopia and begin to uh, teach the gospel, explain the gospel to people in Ethiopia. So this is uh, the first example that we have in Scripture by implication of the gospel going to another culture outside of the Jews. But it is the details of it are not provided. Philip then went to um, Azotus, which is a, a Greek name for Ashdod, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to uh, Caesarea. So if we look at a map, down here in the lower right corner, you see Caesarea on the coast. And this area here, uh, around where you had the name Caesarea, that is the area there and to the south to Jerusalem. That is the area of Judea and Samaria. So chapters, chapter 8 focuses on this expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem uh, to Judea and Samaria. Then in chapter 9, we're going to see the salvation of the Apostle Paul, who was originally known as Saul of Tarsus. And Paul is saved in chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, we switch back to Peter. And Peter has the vision to, to uh, take the gospel to Cornelius, who is a Gentile, and Gentiles, for the first time, are officially and overtly recognized as entering into uh, the church. And so Cornelius is accepted uh, and becomes a believer at that point. And the apostles in Jerusalem, by chapter 11, recognize that God is doing a work with the gospel that goes beyond the Jews. It goes to uh, to the Gentiles. And so Acts chapter 10 and 11 focuses on the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church. Now in chapter uh, chapter 12, excuse, excuse me, let's skip to um, sort of a summary of the gospel to the Gentiles in chapter 11, verses 16 through 18. Uh, Peter is summarizing to the leaders in Jerusalem what had taken place with Cornelius. He said, then I remembered, this was after they had 
uh, received the Holy Spirit after they had accepted the gospel and then received the Holy Spirit, Peter said, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And when they, that is, the apostles, heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So at this point, you see a recognition of the importance of the Gentiles. And then in verse 19, the author shifts, and he goes and he begins to bring our attention back to what's going on with Paul uh, and Barnabas. Verse 19, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So they're going up the coast to Phoenicia, the coast, the, to, the, to the northwest of Israel. They're going out to Cyprus, which is an island out here in the middle of the Mediterranean, and they are going to Antioch. Now, here is Antioch of Syria up the coast north of uh, Israel in the area of, of uh, modern Lebanon and modern Syria, right, right near the border. And so they're going to Gentile areas, but notice the last phrase of, of Acts 11.19, but they went to no one but the Jews only. And they had a tremendous response. In verse 21, we're told a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And when word of this came, when word of the number of converts in Antioch reached Jerusalem in the south, then they sent Barnabas to the north. Now, we have to remember that what happened with Paul is he was initially saved in Damascus. He went back to Jerusalem. He was he was preaching there, and apparently he was causing some trouble or stirring up some trouble. He was very... Uh, um, uh, controversial because of his past in persecuting the Jews, and we're told that he finally was sent back to his home in Tarsus. So he's up here in Tarsus working away in his tent-making uh, business because uh, he was just too controversial down in Jerusalem. And there's an interesting little note in chapter 9, verse 31, that after they sent Paul to Tarsus and got him out of Jerusalem, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. So uh, uh, Paul got sent home to uh, study the Word for a period of about 12 or 13 years. This is his preparation time. And he is in obscurity, and no one knows what went on in Paul's life during those 12 or 13 years. And then when the church of Jerusalem heard about all these converts in Antioch, they sent Barnabas up there. And when Barnabas came and saw what was happening in Antioch, he knew who they needed. And in verse 25 of chapter 11, we're told that Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So it's still primarily a Jewish-oriented church. And then in chapter 12, there's increased persecution on the uh, believers in Jerusalem, and the result of that persecution, it continues to have them sc- scattered out. 
And then we shift, and at the end of chapter 12, Luke comes back to talking about Barnabas and Saul and what's happening in Antioch. They had been sent. They had heard through the prophecy of Agabus that there was going to be a famine in Jerusalem. They sent uh, they sent Barnabas and Saul down to the church of Jerusalem. And then in verse 25 of chapter 12, we hear of their return. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So this is our first reference to John Mark. Now, the point I'm bringing out here is when they go down to Jerusalem, there's this enthusiastic young man there who uh, was probably asking a lot of questions, and they decided that they needed to include John Mark in what they were doing because he seemed to show some potential for ministry. And this is one of the important things that a pastor should be sensitive to is to identifying potential young men who have the potential for going into full-time professional Christian ministry. I don't mean that the pastor's job is to go out there and start saying, well, you need to be doing this or you need to be doing that. But as I teach the Word, what I have seen over the years is there are certain men who respond who have the gift of pastor-teacher. And right now there's probably a dozen men of that caliber who are listening to tapes, and they send me emails all the time, and um, and I respond to them. They ask questions about training and what they can do, and, and I try to encourage them. And if the opportunity presents itself, I try to have some of these guys uh, travel with me or meet me when I go on a conference somewhere just to get to know them and to give them an opportunity to get involved in ministry. Because we are living in an age today where we're in a crisis. We're in a crisis of solid pastoral leadership that understands the priority of teaching the Word. And part of the reason we're in this crisis is because uh, there's been a lack of good training. And it's amazing to me uh, when I get out there and I run into some of these guys who are so-called doctrinal pastors who never went to seminary, how much heresy and garbage they teach because they don't know how to study the Word. And I've recently been talking to two or three other doctrinal pastors who have seminary training, and we've all come to the same conclusion, that we're in a crisis state, and we need to be challenging young men to make their, uh, to understand they have the gift of pastor-teacher, and to do what is necessary to get the training, not to wait until they're 35 or 40 or 50. Now, that's fine for some people, and there are some folks, and like um, Dan Ingram, who spent a career in the military and after 20 or 25 years can retire and then go into a second career, go, become a missionary, get get go to seminary, get training, be a missionary, be a pastor. But for the most part, if you have... Um, have already made career decisions and family decisions by the time you're 30 or 35. If you have the gift of pastor-teacher, you've basically let that train leave the station. You can't go back. You're not going to get that opportunity again. You've missed it. And there are a few rare exceptions to that, so don't think that, that uh, it's all over with. But for the most part, once you have children and a wife and you're involved in a career, it is very difficult to get the kind of training you need to be a pastor. You're going to have to settle for some kind of a, a secondary uh, option. 
But the point I just want to bring out here is that Barnabas and Saul are sensitive to to the fact that there's going to be young men that are going to be interested in the gospel ministry, and so they invite them to come along to give them training. This is the sort of the founding of what we would call a seminary training in the this early stage. So they bring Mark along with them, and they go back to, to Antioch. And we're told in chapter 13, verse 1, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So there's a number of qualified teachers. But as they ministered in the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Barnabas or Saul are the best of the lot. See, what we usually think of when we're trying to identify someone we're going to send out as a missionary, we don't want to identify the best. When I, I talk to parents, I see parents who have children, and years ago I used to spend a lot of time in uh, various kinds of youth ministry and camping ministries, and you'd see young young men and women who wanted to uh, go on the mission field, wanted to be a go into ministry, young men who wanted to go to seminary. And parents would say, no, 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 I don't want you going into that. You need to go get a, a degree at a secular school. Uh, I don't want you going and getting a degree, uh, graduating summa cum laude, going to one of the best universities in the land, and then throwing it away uh, by being a pastor or a missionary somewhere. Now, they never said it like that, but that's what they were indeed saying. And what we, the idea we should have in the church is let's take our sons and our daughters, send them to the highest quality education that they can get, and then send them out on the mission field. That is the biblical approach. The biblical approach is not, well, they're going to go on the mission field, so let's not spend a lot of money on that. Let's just send them to junior college or some state school, and don't waste a Harvard MBA on somebody who's going to go be a missionary in some obscure point in the world. That is not historic Christianity. Biblical Christianity is you give your best to the Lord, not the worst. And so they took the two best men, were indicated by the Holy Spirit, to be the missionaries, Barnabas and Saul, and they set out on what's called Paul's first missionary journey, starting in verse 4, and they went to Cyprus, and they took John Mark along with them. Now, I've always kind of liked what happens with John Mark because he screws up to the maximum and he quits. He's just too, he's a little young, he's a little green, and he runs into the problem that many missionaries run into, and that is that when they go out on the mission field and they get into a cross-cultural situation, it's outside their comfort zone, it's it's a little difficult. They don't have all the, the, the things and comforts and, and foods or whatever it was that they had back home. And so after they left Cyprus, John Mark bailed out on them. Well, Paul, later on, Paul didn't want to put up with that, but Barnabas would. And Barnabas took him along, and Barnabas showed a degree of grace orientation toward Mark that Paul didn't. But I'm getting ahead of myself. On this first missionary journey, they went first to Cyprus, and then after ministry in Cyprus and seeing uh, churches established there, they left and they went to Perga. And it was when they reached Perga that 
John Mark returned to Jerusalem. That's this long green arrow here. He bailed out on him. But Paul and Barnabas continued, and they went up to, to Antioch of Phrygia and to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, these small towns. And then after they finished on that forward route and they established uh, churches and, and saw a number of uh, converts in each uh, in each town, they went back through each town to check up on everybody, to see how they were doing, to establish and appoint leaders, and to make sure these churches were were going forward. They didn't just get converts, establish the church, and then just go on and kind of leave it in the hands of the Holy Spirit. They went back and checked on them, and then eventually they returned back to Antioch where they gave a report to the church. And then Paul went out on his second missionary journey, and on his second missionary journey, he went back to those original uh, towns he had visited before, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, and he made sure that those churches were doing well and were established. And here he picks up a young man who's showing some enthusiasm for the ministry, a young man by the name of Timothy. So we see once again that, that it's not just a matter of conversion, preaching the gospel, evangelizing. It's not just a matter of teaching, but it's also a matter of identifying and training leadership for the future. Now, when Paul left Iconium, and he's starting to head north, we read in uh, Acts 16.6 that when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, this isn't the Asia that, that you think about. You think of Asia in terms of the Far East, but this northern area... Of, uh, of, of Turkey, which is, remember, we also call it Asia Minor. This northern area of Turkey was the Roman province of Asia. This, uh, uh, this area and this, uh, excuse me, not the northern area, that's Bithynia, but this area to the west is Asia. Uh, Ephesus was in Asia. Miletus was in Asia. So they're coming up this way, following this light blue line, and they're going around Asia. God did not want them to go into this area at this time. And it uh, it wasn't for any other reason, because we'll see that God had a different plan. It just has to do with this, with scheduling. God took them to Troas and, Troas, and this is where Paul had a vision of a Macedonian. Macedonia is over here in the north of Greece, of a Macedonian asking for them to come over. And so at this point, he crosses over the Hellespont, goes to Neapolis and Philippi, and now he's in Europe. And so the gospel for the first time came to Europe. And he goes through Greece to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth, establishing churches in those places except for Athens. And then he returned to Ephesus and then returned back to Caesarea, and then he went up to Antioch and gave another report to the church. Now, earlier, I want to pick up a thread here. Earlier I said that, that after John Mark left, after John Mark left on that first missionary journey, when Paul got ready to set out on his second missionary journey, uh, John, uh, Barnabas wanted them to take John Mark with him again, and 
Paul said, no, you know, he's a whiner, he's a quitter, I'm not going to take him with me. So Barnabas showed grace orientation where Paul didn't, and Barnabas took John Mark with him. This is John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. Barnabas saw the potential and said, I'm not going to hold his past failures against him. I'm going to deal with him in grace, and I'm going to take him with me. And so they went back to Cyprus. And Mark had uh, training from Barnabas in his ministry, and because of Barnabas's grace orientation and willingness to forget past failures, Barnabas was trained and had a productive ministry. Paul was out of line here. Paul was impatient, said, he's not, I'm not going to put up with him. He's a whiner. Leave him behind. So Paul, at that point, was out of line, and eventually there was a reconciliation. Paul had to uh, confess that sin and deal with it and move forward. But this was the, so back to the second missionary journey. This is the establishment of churches, and what we're seeing is this expansion of the gospel. And then there's Paul's third missionary journey where he goes back through the same areas in, in uh, uh, Turkey and then over in Greece. But this time he spent two years in Ephesus. And during those two years in Ephesus, he's training young men. Now, along the way, he's picked up uh, Silas and uh, another man named Judas. And he's got an entourage with him now, Silas and Judas and, and Luke is traveling with him and Timothy, and he's training these young men. And he trains them in Ephesus. He trains many others in Ephesus. And we're told that even though earlier he had been forbidden to take the gospel into Asia, there was a reason for it. And in Acts chapter 19, we're told in verse 10 that when he taught for two years in Ephesus so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So initially on that second missionary journey, uh, the Holy Spirit prohibited him from going into this western province of Asia because there was another plan, and that plan was that on the third missionary journey, he would spend two years in Ephesus and train other men who would then go out into this area to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sar- Sardis, Smyrna, uh, Miletus, all over that that province, and they would take the gospel and establish churches. They established churches at Laodicea, at Colossae, and many other places during this time. So we see the expansion of the church into Europe and into Greece. And then Paul went back to Jerusalem instead of going on to Rome, and the Lord had to uh, take him by force, get him arrested in Jerusalem, take him by force by ship to uh back to Rome, and he went to Rome, and it was at Rome that he witnessed to many there, and we're uh, told in Scripture that he was released from Rome, he was released from his imprisonment in Rome, and he probably traveled, at that point Acts ends, and he probably traveled back over to Macedonia, and then he went on another journey, he went to Spain, and early church fathers indicate that Paul took the gospel to Spain before he was arrested a second time and then executed in Rome. So this is how the gospel begins to expand. But there were many others who were saved in Rome who then went to the north of Italy, went up into into Gaul, went to 
to Spain. Some went, uh, some were soldiers who were with the Roman army and went to Britain and they took the gospel with them and they established churches there. And so one of the things that we see from studying church history is the expansion of the church through missions. And it's always been done through missionaries who are willing to leave their home leave their families, leave their comfort zone, and go take the gospel to people who haven't heard. And we've seen what took place during the apostolic period and what's covered in the Scripture. But outside of Scripture, we have certain traditions that indicate the expansion of the church in the in the uh, apostolic era. We're told that not only did Paul take the gospel into uh, the area we now know as Turkey, but the Apostle John also had a ministry and established many churches in Asia Minor. Peter, we're told, went east. He went to Babylon and the Parthian Empire and established churches there. Furthermore, Acts 2.9 states that Jews from Parthia, Mede, Elam and Mesopotamia were in Jerusalem on Pentecost. So those Jews would have heard the gospel and then gone back to their homes in those areas and spread the gospel. Uh, Tradition and legend tells us that the uh, apostles Thomas and Bartholomew also went to Parthia and to India where they established churches. In fact, there are some churches in extremely isolated areas of India that claim a heritage that goes all the way back to uh, the Apostle uh, Thomas. John Mark eventually went to Egypt where he was martyred in Egypt. We know the Ethiopian eunuch went on to Ethiopia where there were many who were evangelized as a result of his ministry there. We're told in Acts that early Jewish Christians in Cyrene, and Cyrene is is here on the north coast of Africa, that there were Jewish Christians from Cyrene. In fact, remember Simon who carried the cross of Christ on the way to, on the way to Golgotha. Simon of, was from Cyrene. So there were other uh, Jewish believers from Cyrene who took the gospel all the way across the Med here, the Mediterranean, to Antioch. So by the end of the apostolic era, strong churches were established in the area north of Philippi, here in Macedonia, in the northern part of Greece, uh, throughout Greece, all throughout Asia Minor over here. Strong churches were established in uh, North Africa, Cyrene, established in Rome, the north of Rome, Spain, North Africa, and it was beginning to penetrate into Britain. Well, what happened after Acts and Acts ended, and what how did the expansion take place after the close of the New Testament canon? Well, the the some have suggested that the book of Acts, which is actually entitled the Acts of the Apostles, should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And the Acts of the Holy Spirit didn't stop in Acts 28, but continued. We're told that during the next couple of centuries, there was this strong, vibrant church in in uh, Asia Minor, in the area now known as Turkey, that Ephesus was a strong center. They had a strong church there that continued to send out missionaries throughout this this uh, area in Turkey. 
We had a strong church in Antioch. In fact, for the first four centuries of Christianity, the church in Antioch was one of the strongest churches in the ancient world. There was also a strong church down in Alexandria, but they had a tendency to get into heresy and into too much allegorical interpretation. And then, of course, there was a strong church in Rome. Well, one of the very well-known early church fathers was a man by the name of Gregory Thaumaturgus, who operated in Pontus. Pontus is in this north area here. We can barely see it on this map. You see the designation here, Bithynia and Pontus, on the on the northern uh, uh, edge of Turkey, on the on the uh, shore of the Black Sea. And when he became a pastor in his native town, there were allegedly, or legend tells us, there were only 17 Christians in his hometown. And when he died 30 years later, there were only 17 non-Christians in his hometown. And he and many others established large churches throughout uh, Asia Minor. Furthermore, in Syria, there were large churches established in Antioch as well as in Edessa, and they sent missionaries and evangelists east towards China as well as to India, so that by the 5th, 6th, and 7th century, there were Nestorian Christians. They uh, did not have a sound Christology. They followed the errors of Nestorius, but they took the gospel uh, into India and into China. In fact, we know that um, in northern Syria, there was a king by the name of Avgar in the year 200 who was converted to Christ. Furthermore, in that same area, sort of this this area of uh, over here, we're just off the map, northeastern Turkey, northern Syria, what today would be uh, northern Iraq, in that area, there was a missionary by the name of Gregory the Illuminator who led the king of the Armenians, his name was Tiridates, to Christ. And in the year 410, he translated the New Testament into Armenian, into the Armenian language. That's not Ar- Ar- Armenian, but Armenian language. Then in North Africa, in North Africa, you had a strong church in Cyrene that was the home of, uh, of Simon. There were many converts there. Uh, Alexandria was a strong seat of the church. And then over to the west, just off the map, you had Carthage, which became a strong center. Near that was a, was Hippo, which is where uh, a famous uh, church father by the name of Augustine was the, was the bishop in the 5th century. So there were strong churches in that part of Carthage, and they stayed that way. They became weak after Augustine, and they were finally wiped out, I believe, by divine discipline by the Muslims in the 8th century. Furthermore, Rome sent out missionaries north and west that carried the gospel to Gaul and to Britain, and it was during this time that numerous Latin translations of the Bible were made. During the 3rd century... Irenaeus was a famous pastor in Lyon in France, and he taught uh, Celtic and Latin-speaking people, so the gospel began to spread. And then among the Goths, the Goths were those who were north in Germany. A uh, missionary by the name of Ulfilus went out in 311. His lifespan was from 311 to 383, 
and he was originally from Cappadocia in Asia Minor. He was captured by the Goths. Now, the Goths operated roughly from southern Germany, Austria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, those modern areas. He was captured by the Goths as a teenager. Later, he escaped. He went back to Constantinople where he was trained in the ministry, and he went back north of the Danube River to take the gospel to the uh, tribes of the Goths. Uh, persecution from some of them caused him to move south of the Danube so he would be protected by the Romans. But it was there that he he put together an alphabet uh, for the Gothic language. He gave them a written language, and he translated the Bible into the Gothic language. He translated all of the Old Testament except for Samuel and Kings, and he translated all of the New Testament into their language. And he, his translation was called the Silver Bible, and there were thousands who were converted to an Arian form of Christianity. Now remember, Arianism had a low view of the eternal, eternality of Christ, and that was typical all through that area. Many people became Arians, and it wasn't for another couple of centuries before they got straightened out on their understanding of the person of Christ. So that's just a little bit about the expansion of Christianity in the early church. And what I want to do is to take us through the expansion of Christianity and missionary activity throughout the medieval period and the modern period up to modern missions to give us a perspective of how God has used uh, missionaries. But we don't have time to finish all of that uh, this morning, but next time we'll do that. And I've got some fascinating information about mission activity in New England and in southeastern Connecticut and Massachusetts to the Indians that occurred during the uh, colonial period. And that was a very strong emphasis uh, that took place here in the 17th century. So we'll get into that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to study through the book of Acts and on through history to see how the gospel has gone throughout the world, starting in Jerusalem, moving through Judea and Samaria, and then continuing to expand to the uttermost part of the world, that the mission given to the disciples continues today to make disciples learners of all nations, to take the gospel to those who are lost, to witness to them, to see the expansion of Christianity, to teach the word to those who are positive. Father, we pray that you would give us as a body of believers a, a tremendous vision for how we can be a part of this expansion, how we can be more diligent in the uh, support, in the prayer support, the financial support, the physical support, the encouragement of the missionaries that we support from this congregation, that we can realize what an impact we can have as a small group uh, through to to the entire world, and today with with tapes, with the internet, and so many other things available to us, we can have a uh, an impact that goes far beyond just our local uh, church. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
All you need to do to have eternal salvation is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. There is nothing you can do to add to his work on the cross. He paid the price. He completed the work of salvation. You can add nothing to that. You must trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone for your salvation. It's a free gift. You don't have to do anything to earn it or deserve it. You don't have to bargain with God. You don't have to change your life. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to become religious. All you need to do is simply trust that Christ died on the cross for your sins. Now, Father, we thank you again for this time this morning, for the challenge, the encouragement in missions. We pray that we might be responsive to that challenge. In Jesus' name, amen.